and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we're starting in the year 2040. Patrick Henderson were escorted by armed guards to and from the facility, but were able to retrieve their child without any incidents. Turkey Trot got quite the surprise when President Jim Briskin lined up at the starting line. News chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on and... President Adam Susan signed an executive order today banning the use of all plastics in a move that shocked environmentalists and plastics manufacturers alike. The order comes with little explanation or direction. It does not specify which types of plastics should be banned or how the ban should be enforced. As with so many recent executive orders, right now, no one is sure what happens next. Swahilda Capellius from member station KJZZ reports. President Susan didn't take questions after signing his executive order. But his brief speech before signing the document gave a few clues as to the motivation behind the order. Our nation is strong because thanks to our independence, we rely on no one. And not only are we seeking energy independence, but we must also seek materials independence. Yes, we cannot waste a drop of petroleum, our most precious commodity. President Susan also poked fun at environmentalists as he signed. They think I'm such a bad guy. Well, how about this? I hope they have the decency to thank me. But what happens next is unclear. John Rodriguez is a spokesperson for Hexus Plastics, a trade organization that represents companies who manufacture plastic goods. Our member companies make hundreds of thousands of types of plastics that go into everything, from cars to your hospital equipment. And Rodriguez was quick to defend his industry's worth to the American Federation. The plastics industry employs more than 900,000 American workers and brings in $373 billion. We look forward to a dialogue with the president to find a way to achieve his goals without destroying such a booming industry. Environmental groups are also scratching their heads at the order. Obviously, uh, we're excited about anything that might have a positive impact on the environment. Janet Evison works at One Earth World, an environmental group that has been lobbying for plastic bag bans across the country. Uh, for now, I guess we'll take it as a victory, since I guess no plastic means no plastic bags. Now, lobbyists and manufacturers will just have to wait and see whether President Susan enforces the ban or not. Swanhilda Capellius, reporting from Phoenix, Arizona. So in this future, plastic is banned. All plastic, which is a lot of stuff. Take a look around you right now. There is probably a ton of plastic. The coating on your desk, the light fixtures, the electrical wires within the walls, your coffee mug, your computer monitor, your mouse, your steering wheel, the little nubby bits at the end of your shoelaces, which I recently learned have a name. They are called aglets. Anyway, for most people on the planet, plastic is a part of their everyday lives. 
The first thing you touched coming out of the womb was probably made of plastic in the form of latex gloves on the hands of whoever delivered you. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of different plastics. So we're thinking about the stuff that's used in soda bottles, or we're thinking about what's in your hairbrush, which is nylon, or we're thinking about that clear, hard plastic that is now in some car windows, polycarbonate, or we're thinking about vinyl. This is Susan Frankel, the author of Plastic, A Toxic Love Story. Today's plastics can come in almost any form. They can be soft or rigid, clear or opaque, thick or thin. What they all have in common is they are polymers, which means they're made mostly from fossil fuels and they're these very, very big molecules. So I always tell people, think of it like, you know, beads on a necklace. Whether the beads are packed closely together or strung out far apart or have little dangly things or are big or square or circular, all of those are going to make the necklace look and act different. Plastic is everywhere. And plastic is bad. That's something that I think most people have come to accept. Norman Mailer once wrote that plastic has come to represent, quote, the social equivalent of cancer. And all across the United States, there have been regular pushes to ban all kinds of plastic. Plastic bags, styrofoam containers, certain kinds of plastic in toys and baby bottles. In 2008 alone, there were over 400 pieces of plastics-related legislation introduced at various levels all across the United States. Plastics are sort of the the ultimate symbol of unsustainability. They're sort of the physical side of our unsustainable exploitation of fossil fuels, um, petroleum and coal. My name is Brad Harris. I have a Ph.D. in the history of science and technology from Stanford University. Brad also has a podcast called How It Began, a history of the modern world. And at Stanford, his dissertation was about how and why plastic became ubiquitous. People see plastic in the ocean or on the beach or in landfills. Plastic doesn't break down. It sticks around for thousands of years. That is clearly the sort of epitome of the unsustainability of our material culture. And so plastic is the problem. And if we could ban plastic, we would go a long way towards solving that problem. It would be better if we could revert back to natural materials. The thing is, that's not how it used to be. In fact, in the beginning, plastic was a solution to our environmental problems. Using natural materials was how humanity did its business for thousands of years. And time after time, you can see first local communities and then nationally and then globally, especially as economies grew and capitalism really got going, um, natural materials were overexploited. Of course, there's things like wood, um, a lot of whale products, so whale oil um, and baleen and bone was used to make all kinds of products and tortoise shell. To try and combat this overexploitation, people started looking for replacement materials for things like ivory. Some of the earliest photographs ever to be taken were taken of piles, mountains of elephant tusks. And people were appalled at this, not, not to mention just beyond the emotional problem. The price of ivory was skyrocketing. And so especially during the Civil War in the United States, imports of ivory really just dried up. And ivory might seem sort of like an in insignificant material, but think of it, in a, especially in America, ivory was found in every single bar 
um, in the form of billiard balls and piano keys and every church in the form of piano keys. So a billiards ball manufacturer put out an ad asking for, you know, any inventive genius to come up with a substitute and they would pay $10,000. That's Susan again. And that ad was spotted by this guy named John Wesley Hyatt, who was sort of an amateur inventor. And he built a workshop behind his house and he started, you know, tinkering around with this and that different materials. And after a lot of trial and error, he he finally came up with this substance that he called celluloid because it was made from plant cellulose and camphor. And celluloid was great because it looked like ivory. It could be made to look like ivory. It also could be made to look like tortoiseshell or coral or ebony, all these things that were hard to get and were kind of luxury materials. Using cellulose, companies could make things like billiard balls and combs and piano keys without having to use ivory. And it wasn't just ivory that prompted the invention of plastics. That was followed in 1907 by Bakelite, and that was invented by this Belgian chemist named Leo Bakeland. And again, he was looking for a substitute for a scarce or natural resource. What he was looking to replace was lacquer. Did you know that lacquer, or more specifically shellac, comes from a beetle? I did not know that. But it turns out that shellac is a resin that is secreted by the female lac beetle, which lives on trees in India and Thailand. And in the early 1900s, the United States was blowing through all of its lacquer. Lacquer also happens to be a great electrical insulator. And in the early 20th century, the United States is stringing up wire everywhere and rapidly electrifying, and they couldn't get enough lacquer to insulate the wire. So they were desperate for an alternative material. So in comes this guy named Leo Bakeland. And Bakeland, like Hyatt before him, set up a workshop, spent a lot of time trying to come up with something, and he came up with this stuff for, called Bakelite. It was completely made from fossil fuels, from like a byproduct of the coal-making process. And it was this great, hard, sort of dark material. As soon as Bakelite was introduced, it was instantly adopted all over the place. Think of those old-fashioned telephones, those old black telephones. That's Bakelite. It was used in fountain pens. It was used in buttons. It was used in industrial gears. And, of course, you know, um, electrical wires. Which was great for the poor little lac beetle. The shellac was hand-scraped off of trees. Usually the tree was injured seriously in the process, if not killed. This was a big problem. It wasn't just the beetle. This was like forests across South Asia were being really, really damaged. After Bakelite, we stopped using shellac and all that kind of um, exploitation of the beetle and those forests where that beetle lived and secreted its gummy residue, which became shellac, was was, um, really suspended and Bakelite was substituted for that. There are tons of examples like these. Plastics cut down on deforestation, on tortoise hunting, on pearl harvesting, and even on whaling. At the risk of incurring an aneurysm in environmentalists, petroleum saved the whales. Once petroleum was developed enough to re- just completely replace um, the, all of the commercial outlets that whale uh, you know, products had gone into, whale populations started to recover. Now, let's not pat ourselves on the back too much. Lots of whales are still in big trouble. And a lot has changed since the early 1900s. Plastic has now totally taken over. And in fact, that monumental rise in the use of plastics has introduced a new problem for marine creatures specifically. So when plastic 
gets into the marine environment, it doesn't ever fully dissolve or mineralize, but it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces. I'm Sherry Lippiat. I'm the California Regional Coordinator for the NOAA Marine Debris Program. Marine debris is a catch-all term for stuff in the ocean that should not be there. So it can be everything from tiny pieces of microplastic up to consumer debris items, lost fishing gear, abandoned and derelict vessels. Not all marine debris is made of plastic, but most of it is. Plastic is typically the number one material type that's found, um, and it usually ranges from about 70 to maybe 85 percent of the items that are found during these surveys are plastic. The most famous piece of this marine debris problem is the so-called Great Garbage Patch, or Great Pacific Garbage Patch, or whatever you want to call it. For a long time, people described this garbage patch as an actual island of floating garbage in the ocean. But that's not exactly right. So the garbage patches aren't an island um, or like a, a really thick accumulation of plastic that you can see from space or walk on. It's more of a peppery soup of plastic debris, so a lot of smaller plastic fragments. Because of the way the currents in the ocean move, those plastic fragments tend to accumulate in two regions, the western garbage patch off of Japan and the eastern garbage patch about halfway between Hawaii and California. And so it's just an area of the ocean where more plastic tends to accumulate compared to other regions of the ocean. Um, And you can actually sail through these areas and not even know unless you tow a net and collect a sample. Fish and other creatures often wind up consuming these little bits of plastic. And unsurprisingly, that is not good for them. And so that can cause physical blockages or damage um, to the gut, as well as creating a false feeling of fullness. You know, the plastic is not providing any nutrition to these animals. So, for example, albatross in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, pretty much any bird that's found has significant accumulations of plastic in their gut. Um, just because of the way that they feed and and forage on the stuff that's floating at the surface, which is where a lot of the plastic is found. Similarly, I think there's uh, evidence that sea turtles will mistake, uh, for example, a plastic bag for food. So scientists know that individual animals ingest this stuff, but they actually still don't have great data on what that means for entire species or even populations how many Hawaiian monk seal are killed by marine debris every year, and what impact does that have on their overall population. So if there are these pooled regions of plastic just sort of floating at the top of the ocean, why don't we just invent a a marine Roomba to skim the top of that plastic off? So these areas are constantly changing in size and shape um, based on the current Uh, weather conditions and the way that the currents are moving, it's not concentrated. Um, So it would take an incredible amount of effort just to cover this area even once, and all the while, more and more plastic is being dumped into the ocean. Instead of trying to build the world's largest pool skimmer to use on our oceans, Sherry says that we should stop throwing so much plastic in them in the first place. So thinking about single-use disposable items that we're using every day, like straws or plastic cutlery or to-go boxes, plastic bags, and thinking of ways that we can switch to reusable items and just kind of cut off that waste stream. Or we could just ban plastic, like in this episode's future. 
And when we come back, we're going to talk about all of the ways that that would change the world and who is developing alternatives right now. But first, a quick break. I wanted to start this section with a big list of statistics about just how prevalent and huge the plastics industry is. It turns out that it's actually really hard to find data on all plastics because there are so many different kinds. The American Chemistry Council puts out an 80-page manual every year called The Resin Review. It just talks about plastic resins. But here is some information that I could find. According to the Plastics Industry Association, there are 18,000 plastic manufacturing facilities in the United States. And the plastic industry in the U.S. alone employs over 1 million people. According to the World Watch Institute, 299 million tons of plastic were produced worldwide in 2013. Plastics are in credit cards, carpet backing, window and door frames, synthetic leather, film, irrigation pipes, fast food trays, video cases, coat hangers, CDs, medical storage containers, paint, toys, pots for plants. Think about your kitchen. Your pots and pans probably have a plastic coating. Your refrigerator has plastic shelving. Your spatula has that rubbery, plasticky stuff at the end of it. The containers that you buy things in, peanut butter, oil, sauces, yogurt, chip bags, all made of plastic. Your vegetables might have come wrapped in plastic. Your cheese is probably wrapped in a paper that has a plastic coating. Or take cars, for example. In the 1960s, about 20 pounds of plastic was used for each car. Then, in the 1970s, the U.S. passed vehicle fuel economy rules, and manufacturers were pushed to make their cars more energy efficient. One way to do that is to make the car lighter. And one way to make the car lighter is, you guessed it, use plastic. Today, on average, 50% of a car's volume is made up of plastic. That's about 336 pounds of plastic per vehicle. This is all to say that without plastics, everything would change. The idea of banning plastic is ridiculous. I mean, for one thing, what are you banning? There isn't a single plastic. There are a lot of different plastics. That's Susan Frankel again, the author of Plastic, A Toxic Love Story. Are you banning the plastic that's used to make plastic bags? Well, that's also used to package produce that's going to travel from, you know, Chile to Massachusetts in the winter. And the only way you're going to be able to feasibly get it here and to be able to get it here cheap enough is by using plastic. That's the only lightweight material that allow you to do it. Are you going to ban nylon? Does that mean that we're not going to have toothbrushes anymore made of nylon? They're going to have to be made out of boar bristles. Do we have enough boars to make toothbrushes for 300 million people? Are you going to ban acrylic? Okay, so what are you going to use in the windows of, of planes? Because that's not all glass. If they say no more plastic, period, then our economy grinds to a halt. <laughs> that's Brad Harris again. If we want to consume materials the way that we do, if we want our entire basis of prosperity to be gross domestic product, to be a measure of the things that we consume, and that that has to grow every year by like some two, three, four, five percent. And the more it grows, the better we're doing. If that's our metric for prosperity in the modern world, then plastic is the best way we've discovered so far, the most efficient way we've discovered so far for getting away with that. Ah, once again, the true enemy here is capitalism. One thing that's really hard when we're talking about replacing plastics is that a lot of times plastics do things that we just don't have any other way to do. So even when we know that there might be downsides and risks to a certain kind of plastic, we have to weigh those against the benefits. 
I think a really great example of this is the vinyl blood bag. Until you had blood bags, you couldn't have blood banking. Uh, you didn't really have a way to collect blood and, and keep it and be able to use it for transfusions. The blood bag was invented by a guy named Carl Walter, a surgeon and a professor at Harvard Medical School in the 1940s. At the time, the concept of blood banking was totally new, and it was actually kind of controversial. Carl Walter had actually established one of the first ever blood banks, and it lived in a basement at Harvard. Apparently, the trustees at the university found the whole concept of storing a bunch of blood in a basement kind of weird. So Walter kept the whole thing on the down low. Anyway, this blood bank he had established, it had a lot of problems. The blood from donors was drawn through rubber tubes and deposited into glass bottles that had rubber stoppers. The problem with the rubber was that it allowed air and bacteria to get in, which you obviously don't want. So Walter went looking for a better way, and he hit on this material that was all the rage at the time, called polyvinyl chloride. So he uh, started working with that vinyl, and he developed... um, this bag, which, you know, seemed to hold the blood really well, seemed to preserve the blood really well, and it didn't break. This was a total revelation, but Walter's colleagues weren't totally sold. So Walter came up with an idea to really impress them. And so, you know, to show it off, he he brought it to this meeting to uh, show it off to other scientists. And he stepped on the blood bag, you know, and like, look, see, it doesn't break. Now, Walter was right. The vinyl blood bag is a huge deal. Without it, blood banks probably wouldn't exist today. And the bag found an immediate use on the battlefield. The, the way in which it really first got used widespread was during the Korean War. And the medics loved it because they could squeeze the bags to get the blood moving when they were treating men on the field. And in the past, they had had to use glass bottles, which they had to hoist up to uh, rely on gravity to get the blood flowing. And then, I mean, it was like this, you know, flag to enemy soldiers. You know, here I am. And the, you know, soldiers on the other side would just sort of shoot at the bottles. I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that the vinyl blood bag has saved a lot of people's lives. According to the American Red Cross, every two seconds, someone in the United States needs blood. And in a year, 6.8 million Americans donate blood to blood banks. That number would be bigger if the FDA lifted their terrible ban on sexually active gay men from giving blood. Anyway, none of that could really happen without the vinyl blood bag. But it's not a pure good either. Soon after they started using plastic blood bags, other researchers discovered that a chemical was leaking out of the vinyl. And it's a chemical called a phthalate that is used in a lot of different vinyls. It's used to make vinyl soft and flexible. And this phthalate can leach out of vinyl pretty easily. And it was leaching into the blood and blood bags and therefore getting into people when they got blood transfusions. Now, we should be clear that this stuff is leaching into the blood in super, super small quantities. For an adult, this stuff is probably no big deal. But if you have, say, a premature baby who needs a blood transfusion, it could be something to worry about. And there is some research suggesting that babies who get a lot of either blood from blood bags or medicines that are given through vinyl, you know, IV kits, may have some effect from this chemical. Very subtle effects, and we don't really know what they are right now. PVC manufacturers have disputed the idea that there are any risks to PVC blood bags. 
And right now, studies still haven't actually pinned down if the amount of chemicals that are leaching out are really having an adverse effect. So we don't know. It does seem clear that if you need a blood transfusion, it's definitely better to take one than to refuse one because you're worried about the plastic. It's hard because I don't want to freak people out. I don't, people shouldn't be freaked out about this. Um, I mean, these are, these are subtle effects. Blood bags have other issues too. The actual manufacture of the PVC that they're made of is really rough on the environment. If there's any plastic I would like to get rid of, it's polyvinyl chloride. It's a terrible plastic. It's noxious and toxic in its manufacture. The only reason it really keeps being made is because it's cheap. That's a bad use of plastic. That's a bad plastic. But blood bags are a great example of how hard it might be to replace plastics. Because even though people are aware that there are some risks to these PVC bags, and even though people know that they are toxic to produce, nobody has come up with a better version. It's a really tough issue because it's acknowledged that phthalates get into the blood in blood bags. On the other hand, the blood bank industry doesn't want to get rid of the blood bags because that particular phthalate is a really good preservative of blood, better than any other uh, that they've been able to find to date. So if plastics were banned outright, you could say goodbye to blood banking, at least until someone figures out a better way. Now, you would also say goodbye to some really noxious and dangerous plastics, which would be great. But you'd have to figure out a way to replace all of that stuff. You would need to find alternative materials that are not made of plastic. So this is our stock of lampshades. Uh, Can I touch? Yeah, please. Uh, There's maybe 20 or so lampshades here that we keep in stock. Um, Some of them are, you know part of our first collection ever uh, grown, so they're more historic. Some are explorations and making planters or other little objects. And all like kind of vary in texture and fuzziness and... Yeah, like this one's much fuzzier than this one. Yeah. My name is Danielle Trophy and I am a designer here in Brooklyn, New York, specializing in creating sustainable solutions at the intersection of science, technology, and design. There's this new classification of designers. They're called bio-designers. And what that, it's kind of a loose term, but what that means is you're working with biomaterials, and I work with uh, mushroom materials. Danielle makes stuff like lampshades and planters out of this mushroom material. And what that is, is um, it's chopped up corn stalks and hemp. So it's uh, a byproduct from the agriculture industry that's been upcycled. And it's been combined with uh, liquid mushroom mycelium. So mycelium is basically like the root structure of a fungus. And these mycelium webs can get really, really big. It is the largest organism on the planet. A lot of people don't know that. There's one in in Oregon that is 1,500 football fields in length and a couple thousand years old. It connects entire ecosystems together and distributes nutrients and water and can signal and communicate. It's like, it's the internet. (laughs) Um, And it looks just like the internet. If you see um, two identical pictures, um, they look exactly the same. So one's mycelium, one is the human-made internet. The key thing to know about mycelium is that it can grow and bind things together, which is how Danielle is using it for her work. We're using it as a binding agent, so um, as the glue. So it's it's growing in molds, um, which are like um, tooling. and that holds a certain shape of whatever we're trying to achieve. And it actually uh, digests and binds to the agricultural waste and creates this lightweight, soft 
uh, and completely compostable material. Sorry, I'm smelling it. No, please. <laughs> it actually has a, like a slight fragrance. It does smell like something. A little bit organic-y. Like, uh, I don't know what the best way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's super light. Um, and it's almost feels like a lamb's ear. Like if you yeah, get like soft. in there, it's super soft. Um, so what is this stuff on the outside? That's the mycelium. So <laughs> it's completely white, uh, a little bit, um, a little bit off white. Um, and that none of that white existed when you first put it in the tooling. It's kind of hard to describe what this stuff feels like. Like sometimes it's rough, but if you let the mycelium grow thicker, it makes this super soft, almost sticky, but not quite sticky layer. It's sort of like if you've ever felt the backside of an animal pelt, like the actual fur is on one side, but on the flip side, there's this really soft, almost like fuzz on it. It's kind of like that. I feel like if I had this, I would just touch it all day. If I had it in my house, I would just be like constantly touching it. I know. That's the other fun thing about the material is, you know, how often do you want to interact with your lamp like that? You know, you constantly be touching and just pet your lamp at the end of the day. So I like that. I like that. It's like it, it's a new way to interact with, you know, something that produces light, which creates this other awareness of how often do you have that light on? And, you know, it's kind of this whole um, cycle. Now, one mushroom lamp is not going to be the end of plastic. Even the molds for the lamp right now are still made of plastic, and the cord for the light for the lamp is wrapped in plastic. But Danielle hopes that the lamp will make people really start considering alternatives in places that they can. Um, the lamp is just a demonstration uh, of one of, the, one of the applications. So really the next step is um, letting people play with it, letting them explore the possibilities and start you know, brainstorming around what other places can this material live in their life? You know, what other materials in their environment can it replace? And it worked for her. Through working with this material, uh, I became really interested in, um, in biomaterials in general and also just biology and science. So I ended up going back to school and getting a master's degree. I'll complete it in two weeks. Um, <laughs> thanks. In biomimicry. Danielle isn't the only one working on biologically derived materials. There's this growing field of bioplastics and biomaterials. Danielle uses mushrooms, but other people are using things like cigarette butts, vegetable oil, gas from landfills, and more. You're already starting to see plastics that are created from captured carbon out of the air. You're seeing plastics that are being made from bacteria or yeast. It's like plastics in the 70s, right? You're in that, that glorious experimentation place where that it really is all about creativity and finding the application and trying to push the boundaries into being able to, um, to achieve the results that you need for the function that you need. But realistically, not everything can be made out of mushrooms or vegetable oil or yeast. If you swing the pendulum back to using only quote-unquote natural materials to make things, you wind up back with the same issue that plastics were trying to solve originally, using too many natural resources like wood and the secretions of bugs. Ultimately, it's not really useful to talk about banning plastic or even types of plastic. It's more useful to talk about the specific uses that do or don't make sense. I always talk about styrofoam. There are discussions about banning styrofoam in places. So styrofoam is like an awful material environmentally. You know, you get a styrofoam coffee cup 
if it gets if it gets dropped on the street it breaks up into a million tiny little pieces that will be around for centuries it's an awful material but put it in the between the walls of a house it's a great insulator it's a green material in building it's just a crappy material when it's used to keep a cup of coffee warm for 10 minutes plastic after all comes from the earth it's oil you know and oil is nothing more than degraded organic molecules from millions of years ago plants and animals that once lived so it's all kind of the same soup of material just in these different forms and so if i were in charge i would focus less on banning anything and instead i would try to focus on how do we gain control over this sort of molecular waste stream to the point where we can fully recycle any kind of material. If we could create that kind of closed loop system, both in terms of the waste that we produce that could be used to make plastics and in terms of massively ramping up recycling and making sure that the plastics that we make are plastics that can be adequately recycled, it could be, you know, it could be fantastic. It could be like utopia. It's unlikely that we will ever live in a world without plastic. Unless, of course, there is some kind of apocalypse. But even then, the plastics that we've made today will probably still exist, for better or for worse. And I hope that maybe I've convinced you that having some kinds of plastic around is a good thing. Just maybe not in the form of, say, a disposable cup that you throw away after one use. Stop doing that. That's all for this future. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelyn. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The voices from the future for this episode were provided by Lisa Pollock, Ariel Duem-Ross, Brent Rose, Victor Dorf, and Mary Beth Griggs. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. This idea was suggested by a listener. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support to learn more about how to give. If financial giving is not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review, or just tell your friends about us. That really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.